After the last podcast, it has come to my attention that the beautiful nation of Scotland was offended somewhat by my Scotch accent in the... Uh, your, your Scotch, your, your Scotch accent. accent. <laughs> in the last episode, together with my assumption that all Glaswegians were alcoholic sex addicts who drank <laughs> Buckfest in parks and approached truck drivers for sexual favours. I would like to apologise for the accent. <laughs> but what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm Batman. Do or do not. There is no tomorrow. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast today. We've got Dan Watkins, Andy Chandler, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Burton. On our show today, we've got our film buff or film bluff quiz. Followed by the return of Nerd Court. And what's going in the stocks today is Thor Ragnarok. So let's start the show. Can we say at this point, this is your anniversary today, isn't it? It is, yes. We're spending it on the podcast. Um, You're spending it arguing over the thing you perhaps love more than each other. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We shall find out. So now it's time for our film buff or film bluff quiz. We do this quiz um, pretty regularly and what happens is we've all got three facts, but one of them is a complete bluff. So I'm going to try and work it out through a series of questions. Dan, would you like to go first with your bluff? Did you all know that the Nintendo Game Boy is 30 years old this year? Ooh. First came out in 1989. (laughs) So here are three Game Boy games. Two of them actually existed. One I have made up. Okay. Number one, Burger King, Quest for the Whopper. (laughs) A, A platformer where you play two kids on a mission from the Burger King to retrieve things for him. Number two, Game Girl, a Barbie platformer where Barbie has to find an outfit for a hot date with Ken while fighting evil sugar cubes. Oh, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) As in like Bjork's band from the 80s? Not as in Bjork's band from the 80s. Okay. (laughs) Number three, Robocop versus the Terminator, a platformer where you are Robocop who travels into the future ruled by Skynet and fights Terminators. Okay, well, I there will, were, there I were will definitely say, comics for that third I one. I will say there? I own one of those games. I'm guessing Barbie. the third one. <laughs> <laughs> I will keep my pound dry, but I owned one of them. There was an arcade game called Burger Time, which yeah. you could imagine yeah. the first one being similar to. And there was definitely some McDonald's games, because I think I had one mm. on the Amiga. I had one on the Mega Drive. They definitely tried to make the Burger King into a character mm. for the mm-hmm. adverts, wasn't he? So mm-hmm. it was definitely a character. I would have thought there would be a game for the third one. Uh, yeah. Assume the time frame's right, is it, John? Uh, uh, Robocop versus Terminator, yeah. The Game Boy was for about 10 years of lifespan, mm-hmm. perhaps. Yeah, that's definitely a game. I had it, but I didn't have it on the Game Boy, so I'm now doubting myself a little <laughs> bit. But certainly it was a game on the Mega Drive that I own. Several of these ones were multi-platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what do we reckon on the girly game? Because that seems to be the outlier. The NES had some Barbie games that were incredibly sexist. I had a, a Game Boy um, a couple of years after when it came out, and I was into Barbie, so I kind of think I would have played it if it had been available, but that's pure oh. guessing. I don't why, know. why were the sugar cubes involved? I haven't played it, I couldn't tell you. So that Barbie wouldn't get fat, I presume, because she has, <laughs> she has to be this crazy... Like, just non-anatomical version of a woman. If you want to have a date with Ken, sugar is the enemy. Mm. Indeed. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I can believe that that one was real, just because I think Dan is much too nice a guy to have made yeah. that up. Yes, I was thinking along those lines as well. I think he might be bluffing us in that there's a McDonald's game, but I'm not sure there's yeah. a Burger King game. Yeah. It seems mm. like the kind of thing that they would do, though, the, the big rival has come out with this mm. marketing technique, so we've got to copy it. There was on the Atari... Two six hundred, a game called Coke Wins, which was Space Invaders, and you were a Coke bottle, and you had to shoot cans of Pepsi. Brilliant. <laughs> was that before the Just Say No campaign? <laughs> Alien versus Predator is, is well known, but I think I've heard of comic books and such where uh, Terminator was introduced to that. Um, so it may have been that you've come across that, mm. and then you've you've made up a, a bluff where you've substituted Robocop. 
Um, Robocop versus Terminator no, is, de- is, is definitely a thing. I withdraw my statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go with Burger King as a bluff. I'm going to go with Barbie. I'm going to go Burger King. Burger King, then. John is wrong. <gasps> Barbie Game Girl did exist. And Burger King was never a game, but you are right. I was trying to bluff you with the fact there was a McDonald's game, mm-hmm. which I had for the NES, and you had to retrieve Ronald's magical bag from the Hamburglar. Oh. <laughs> um, I came across a couple of other quite weird Game Boy games while researching that. One was Austin Powers' Oh Behave, um, an action game with a series of Austin Powers-themed mini-games, including a Pac-Man and rock-paper-scissors against a random Austin Powers villain. Um, And Mario Family, which was a Game Boy game designed to work exclusively with a particular kind of sewing machine. You would plug your Game Boy in, and the sewing machine would produce little stitchings of Nintendo characters. Oh. Weird. Yeah. So, uh, happy birthday, Game Boy. Did we all have Game Boys? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I still got one. Well, my, me and my brother had to share, and there is a, um, there probably still is, there's a dent in um, our, the toilet room door where I tried to break it down because my brother had gone in and locked himself there, <laughs> <laughs> trying to stop me from stealing it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think I inherited my first Game Boy from my aunt. It's still there. The protective covering of the screen has come off, but it does still work. Mm-hmm. Our friend Seb, um, if you listen to podcast, Seb, hello and congratulations hello. on your daughter. Just because his hand would not like, me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, Seb has um, a room dedicated to all yeah. sorts of. It's like a shrine to yeah. Game Boy, and he Nintendo. has fifteen or twenty different Game Boy models. He, mm-hmm. he he collects them. We're not allowed to play on them, but he collects them. <laughs> <laughs> Right, Andy, what have you got? I have one big fat lie and two lovely juicy facts about a very popular (laughs) character who hasn't appeared in a good film since 1983. I refer to the Emperor from Star Wars. Maybe he'll be in a good one this year, who knows? You're refusing to come and see this film, aren't you? Um, Hazel and I are actually in London when it comes out. I told them this, yes. (gasps) And you're not going to be back. I but you, made, book, you book the tickets. I I'll get them for you, I promise. I made a little um, booking error and we're going to be seeing the West Wing weekly podcast in London instead. We're all going to be seeing Star Wars in London because that's where Hazel <laughs> bought the tickets for. No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I just um, yeah, had one of those uh, moments that I will get the tickets for you and you will go and I will just... Um, really are you going to watch it in London at midnight then? Are you staying that night? Um, yeah, we're staying that night. So we're probably going to go the next day. Yeah, so I'll I'll go along and I will try to enjoy it, and um, I'll, I'll be quiet. nice. I'll be nice about it. I promise. Keep quiet. Oh, the West Wing's not that bad. <laughs> I like the West Wing. I have only ever enjoyed three Star Wars. Let's guess which three. <laughs> you may get away with complaining about Thor Ragnarok, but if you were to slag off the West Wing, I think you might. Don't get away with complaining about Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> I'm about to prove it. Right, buff or bluff on the subject of specifically actor portrayals of the Emperor. Mm-hmm. Fact number one, in the original theatrical release of The Empire Strikes Back, the Emperor was portrayed by a woman. Number two, despite never having played a leading role in any feature film before, Ian McDermott was cast as the Emperor in Return of the Jedi without ever having to audition. And number three, McDermott almost didn't return as Palpatine for The Phantom Menace. Lucasfilm initially wanted an older actor and targeted Christopher Lee. Ooh. Mm. It was a woman, right? Wasn't the one shot where it was a monkey with eyes over the top? I believe so. Yeah. Or was it the monkey th- eyes? Or There was something like that. A monkey yeah. was involved somehow. Mm. Mm. And Clive Revel was originally cast. And I have read The Making of Return of the Jedi, and I did read the story of how he was unable to do it and Ian McDermott came in. But I can't recall whether there was an audition process mm-hmm. between that. You said it was his first film. First was leading. First leading. Yeah, he'd been in one film before, but otherwise had been a stage actor. But he didn't even have to audition. They just called mm-hmm. him in for a quick interview. Uh, didn't even tell him what the role was. I just wanted to meet him and afterwards Get, offered him the job. He hadn't even seen Star Wars. That's plausible. If he's yeah. been on mm. stage before, someone's gone along to see him yeah. and said, this guy's yeah. amazing. Because Palpatine is a very theatrical mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't. I'm sure that um, the original portrayal before Eamon Dermot was cast was uh, a woman. I'm sure, I've read that. And uh, Christopher Lee was in the sort of third of the prequels and the second. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Count Dooku had a um, Count Dracula. Yes, a, a fight with Yoda, which was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have uh. go, I have gone off that fight with Yoda a lot since that mm-hmm. film first yeah. came out. Particularly, it's clearly a stunt man with Christopher Lee's head CGI'd on. It's it's not so much that. It's I remember at the time grasping for anything I liked about Attack of the Clones, and that was the bit that everybody wanted mm-hmm. to talk about afterwards, which was Yoda can fight. He's crazy. He flips all over the place. It's amazing. Watching it back now, especially after you watch the original trilogy. I watch that now and I go, that's not Yoda. Yoda would not do that. Yoda is about balance. He is about wisdom. Yes, I'm sure he could be able to fight, but the amount of energy expended by flipping about all over the place is just, it's not not a sensible way to fight. It's not what he would do. Um, So I've come around to that in Attack of the Clones being just a cheap effect to get a a cheap pop Mm. from people going, "Ah, we didn't expect that. And it's rubbish and they hate it now. Anyway, Christopher Lee. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed hearing you say that, Dan. Yeah. Attack of the Clones is my least favourite. You like the Phantom Menace about Jedi, though. Uh, uh, Return of the Jedi is my number two. Oh, no, oh, so you've acted above Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I don't think I did. What? You, did, you play above one of them that you put, put Phantom, Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace ahead of Empire Strikes Back. No. Yeah, I didn't I think you would. No, uh, don't don't make against... me go over my tweets. But... <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. You just, put Rogue you... One over Empire, didn't you? Yes. That might be what I was thinking, yes. maybe. Yeah. yeah, are you confusing Rogue One with the Phantom Menace? If so, get out. <laughs> <laughs> you d- discuss this Christopher Lee thing while I prove myself okay. innocent. Um, I think Christopher Lee is the most likely to be a bluff. Yes. I, I've heard the woman thing, but I've also heard the monkey thing. Mm-hmm. And this will sound, when Peter edits it, like I'm saying, I can't tell the difference between a woman and a monkey. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, the audition thing... I, uh, I can believe that. I can believe I can that. Believe. I'm, I think I'm I would back. go. I, that's, Hi, I'm, I'm going to go for the third one as a bluff, Christopher Lee. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, you're all right. <laughs> hey. uh, can I exonerate myself yes. just quickly? Um, here is my list of Star Wars films that I'm showing to Hazel. You will see that The Phantom Menace is above neither Return of the Jedi nor is it above Empire Strikes Back. Oh, um, would you like to to read out the I mean, list? You can if you want. Number one, A New Hope. Number two, Return of the Jedi. Number three, Rogue One. Four, Force Awakens. Five, Empire Strikes Back. Mm. It's but Force Awakens ahead mm. of Empire. Mm. But Jedi ahead of Empire is but a controversial choice. Following Empire is the Phantom Menace. So five and six. There are is a gulf between five uh, and six, sure. I should say. The Last Jedi, number seven. Number eight, Revenge of the Sith. Number nine, Solo. And ten, Attack of the Clones. Anyone who puts Phantom Menace any higher than bottom needs their own Phantom Menace has more good bits in it than Attack of the Clones or Revenge of the Sith. The Phantom Menace has got the best score, I have to say. Yeah, Mm. the Darth Maul lightsaber duel of the fates and the Mm. pod race are better moments than anything in Attack of the Clones. What about the bit? And more memorable yeah. than I can, Solo. I cannot, I the third one. I cannot yeah. remember a single minute of Attack of the Clones. I don't like sand. <laughs> it's coarse and dry. You also can't remember a single minute of the third one. No, it's funny that. Ah, so, yes, there we are. Um, Peter had to watch it and John got away with it. Yeah. yeah. Revenge of the Sith, again, at least has Ian McDermott hamming it up spectacularly and just having great fun with a terrible film around him. And I can... Forgive lots of parts of that film for that, and I would also put that above mm-hmm. Attack of the Clones. But yeah, I've come around a little bit to Phantom Menace. The good mm-hmm. bits of it I like quite but, a lot. But, and but, but but Jake Lloyd. Yeah, but, but Hayden but, Christensen. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at best. <laughs> he did his best with what he was told to do. Uh, yeah, so I'll I'll just uh, clear up the the whole woman slash monkey thing. Um, <laughs> in the original cut the of Empire, uh, when the emperor appears in a hologram, uh, it is played by uh, an actor and artist named Marjorie Eaton. Uh, she was under heavy makeup, and they superimposed chimpanzee eyes over hers in post production. She did not receive a credit for this performance, though the voice actor Clive Revel did. I knew a monkey was involved somewhere. 
There's always a monkey somewhere there if you look is. deep enough. Yes. You spoiled the end of um, Knife's Out there now. Monkey did it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, they go and re-release it later with unnecessary changes mm-hmm. and additions, and they, they put Ian McDermott in. Um, I love Ian McDermott. He's absolutely brilliant. He's the only good thing in the prequels, in my mind. But I just... I don't find it necessary to make these changes to Star Wars. Leave it alone. I watched the first version of the special edition of A New Hope the other day with the first version of the Jabba the Hutt CGI. Mm. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Not good. Um, Ian McDermott was in a really good drama a few years ago as part of the First World War commemorations called 37 Days, where he played the Foreign Secretary Edward Gray in the lead-up of the month before the First World War was declared. And if you've only ever seen him as Palpatine in Star Wars, it's worth watching that. It's mm-hmm. three episodes, I think. He's a fantastic hamming it up, do it, do it, actor, but he can play that understated, complex character as well. And to see another side to the Emperor, I do recommend that because he's a great actor. Mm-hmm. I will check that out. My Buff or Bluff is about record breaking in films. So there is a chap called Steve Rappel, and he broke a Guinness World Record by watching Captain Marvel 116 times in six weeks. That is 14,268 minutes of the same movie over a span of six weeks. How many times did you watch Thor Ragnarok? 117. (laughs) (laughs) Unofficial. Number two. The highest grossing actor for the past three years is none other than Chris Hemsworth. And number three, the Guinness World Record for acting in the most number of films is held by Jagarthi Shrikh Kumar. He's an Indian film actor and a comedian, and he's acted in over 2,380 films. That's a lot. Yeah. So for the Chris Hemsworth one, um, presumably you're counting the total box office of every movie they happen to be in. In In the last three years. And is this their earnings or the film's profits? This is the film's profits. Oh, the film's um, box office. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. You'd think that the uh, real winner of that would be Nicolas Cage because he's been in 40 films in the last Yes, year. but they've only made £5 each. <laughs> With the first one, can I clarify, is the record the number of times you watch the film or the amount of minutes spent watching the same film? It's the amount of times in such a short space of time. Okay. Why did he pick Captain Marvel particularly? Was there a reason behind it? or You could watch that seven-minute film that Andy recommended last episode. Mm-hmm. You could watch that more than 116 times I in six weeks. I didn't read the rules. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or you made it up. Ah. Now, Chris Hemsworth has been in some big grossing films, but also there's been actors who have been in all those big grossing films that Chris Hemsworth was in, mm-hmm. but have also been in other films as well, because Chris mm. Hemsworth doesn't do that much. Yeah. Now, I think Samuel L. Jackson recently overtook Harrison Ford as the highest grossing ever. star ever. Mm. Yeah. Because he gets all the Avengers credits mm-hmm. like, like... As well as Jurassic Park. Like Hemsworth. And... Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he was in things like Kong Skull Island that did quite well, and mm. mm-hmm. he pops up in more Avengers-y films than Hemsworth does. Yeah. If you look at all the Avengers films, oh no, maybe not the first Infinity War, I'd say Tessa Thompson's been in all the same films that he's been in, and some more. Yeah. Last three years, is that 2018, 2017, 2016? It was from summer 2019, so going back three summers from here. Because mm-hmm. Men in Black International didn't do that well. And Sorry, I just fell asleep there. You just said, <laughs> And Paul Feig's Ghostbusters didn't do that well. And what else was Hemsworth in the past couple of years? That Netflix one where he was a soldier in Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. He was in the boot of your car for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah. It's amazing he managed to hold such a career down. And those films you made whilst he was there, I don't think got wide release. <laughs> <laughs> It's nice that the BBFC still do their job, isn't it? Though? Some of the websites <laughs> have a subscription, though. So yeah. <laughs> they made a new darker dark web just for those videos. <laughs> I did a joke in my head about the term wide release there, and it made me sad. I'm not going to really. Wasn't Dwayne Johnson the mm. highest grossing star fairly recently? Highest paid, I think. Yeah. I think the Hemsworth's been dropped in there as a bluff so he could be mentioned. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> like she needs the, a reason. The Indian film industry is huge. Mm. And though I don't know anything about it, I could very much believe that one. Mm. The Captain Marvel one just sounds weird enough to be accurate. Mm. Um, and I think Hemsworth's been put in there as a sneaky bluff. So I'm yeah. going Hemsworth. I'm going to go Captain Marvel. Okay. I'm going Hemsworth. Hemsworth. Okay. Chris Hemsworth was number three. Mm. Yes. So uh, that was the bluff. Um, you're right, The Rock. Uh, not only the highest paid film, um, but because of all the Fast and the Furious movies, which made billions, he is also in the top grossing list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then Sam- Samuel Jackson was number two. Mm. Mm. Well done. <laughs> My buff or bluff is beat em up games. God. That's good. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm going to be deliberately vague here. I'm going to give you three combinations of people. I'm not going to say what games they are, so that might give it away. I'm going to give you three combinations of two people that can fight each other in a genuine fighting game. Okay. One of which I have made up. Nice. Okay. Number one, Margaret Thatcher <laughs> fighting Pope John Paul II. <laughs> oh, hang on. Was there a spitting image fighting game? Celebrity Deathmatch. Number two, Meatloaf versus Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and number three, Peggy Mitchell versus Phil Mitchell. There was a very long pause wow. before that second one. <laughs> I was trying to remember the ones that I... Made up. Wrote <laughs> so that was the Meatloaf and Abraham, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln. So Celebrity Deathmatch was very popular on MTV and did become a game. And I could imagine Meatloaf and Abraham Lincoln being on that kind of a game. Meatloaf was also in Fight Club. I will give you a clue that it I is not... Abraham Lincoln was. <laughs> not Celebrity Deathmatch. Not Celebrity Deathmatch. The EastEnders one. I can believe they, they were made video game. games, but were they fighting games? <laughs> yeah, it might be like a multi-format game, but where there is a fighting sequence, but then you have all the wooden one Street Fighter... Albert, Albert Squares of Rage. <laughs> and we're not talking a war of words no no a physical fight with energy bars what like Mars <laughs> who was the Margaret Thatcher one the Pope Margaret the Thatcher Pope. versus the Pope yeah so spitting image because they had characters of both of those and there was a spitting image game there was a couple of spitting image games in the 80s wasn't there mm-hmm. yeah that one sounds plausible in that case Meatloaf and Lincoln are two people you wouldn't necessarily associate with each other mm, but sounds like random licensing we don't think john is an eastenders viewer no. so why would they come to mind if he made them up i will say now i have never seen a full episode of eastenders in my life and yet he could pronounce both their names correctly mm-hmm. what phil and peggy i don't <laughs> think that's really an achievement Pegaire. <laughs> Which one of those would John most likely have made up? But he would have had to research the EastEnders one. I don't think he mm. would um, too well, bother to, to do, do that. that. Yeah, he would be like, have to figure out like who, who the characters were. Would they potentially be in the same time? Would they yeah. fight each other? And John's just too lazy. And it's the only so one where true. the characters make I think it's true. sense. Mm. Yeah. So I'd go with that one being true. I would go for Meatloaf and yeah. um, Abraham Lincoln. We watched the episode of Parks and Rec last <laughs> yeah. night where Leslie has her bachelorette party and the stripper is uh, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> But if that's the case, I'm just delving into John's psychology here. Why would you don't, put... Don't, don't. I beg of you. <laughs> Why Meatloaf and Abraham Lincoln? What is John thinking to put those two together? So what sorry, I, w- I would do them? anything for love. But you wouldn't do Abraham Lincoln? But he wouldn't do a stovepipe hat. Oh. <laughs> First name that came up on Google, I'm presuming. Alphabetical. <laughs> you suggested yeah. I don't research these fully. No, I'm not, not suggesting, flat out telling you. <laughs> it was Aaron Sorkin, then it got to Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Got there. So what are we all going for? Meatloaf. Meatloaf. Thatcher Pope. Meatloaf Lincoln. No, uh, the bluff was Peggy Mitchell. Ah! <laughs> well done. Wow. God. And Abraham Lincoln versus Meatloaf is in the Fight Club game. What? <gasps> I mentioned Fight Club. <laughs> you did. Um, so there was a, a PlayStation beat-em-up based on Fight Club that spectacularly missed the point of the film. (laughs) And Abraham Lincoln is in there because in the Fight Club film, they have a discussion about if they could fight anyone from history, who would they fight? 
And Brad Pitt says, I'd fight Abraham Lincoln. Oh, which of is course. in the game as a character. Damn it. Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit is also in there. He was in one of the uh, WWE games. He was, yes, well. yeah. Yeah. And um, Margaret Thatcher and the Pope is from the Spitting Image right. late 80s 8 bit computer game. You can also have Mikhail Gorbachev in there, uh, Ronald Reagan, P.W. Botha, Bota, the then South African president. Bota. Bota. It was a spectacularly bad game, as was Fight Club. But there is not a EastEnders-themed beat-em-up, much as I would love them to be. Yeah. There isn't a theme to mine. Just pick which one you think is not true. Alicia Silverstone's character in Clueless changes clothes 30 times in the movie. The first spoken word in Avengers Age of Ultron is shit. And Winter is Coming is said three times in the first episode of Game of Thrones. I'm pretty sure the second one is true. Yeah, I think that's right as well. Language, Captain. Because you start with that fight through the snowy woods and there's lots and lots of action before you get a line of dialogue. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. There's no kind of... Would Disney open a film with shit? It wasn't Disney at that time, was it? I think it was. Uh, Yeah, they own Marvel Um, by then. There wasn't any kind of preamble like there was in um, Avengers Assemble, that there's a act, there's a wake, and nothing like that in Age of Ultron, I don't think. Baron von Strucker's there hiding Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, but I think that's after the opening shot where they all jump forward and the the camera slows down enough so you get to see them all jumping forward at the same time. (laughs) Is it Iron Man that says it and then Cap says language? That's right, yeah. yeah. And three winter is comings. I remember one of them. Ned Stark says it to um, Cat, I think. And it is the name of the episode. It is. I think. Are you not counting that? Do they say the name of the episode? Does Sean make up episode one? Winter is coming. <laughs> I, I think you'll find that they say the name not of the episode in every episode. Do they? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bluff. Do they go, ooh, it really is a game of thrones at any point? Yeah, and they all turn to the camera and yeah. wink. Yeah, we we used to have a thing when we went to the cinema where if they said the name of the film, you had to cheer. <laughs> that must be the pain they asked during Iron Man, <laughs> <laughs> unless it was the name of a character in the film. Mm. But and what was the thirty times clueless one? clueless thirty Change outfit changes outfit. that I could believe because yep. that's what the film's a lot about. She had like rooms and rooms of closets. Didn't she, mm. Mm. I hate to admit this because I'm not going to, but I have never seen it. It's good. It's actually good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. The modern adaptation of Emma, Emma. Jane Austen. Featuring a young, same age Paul Rudd. Mm. Mm -hmm. There is one film in which Paul Rudd looks younger, which is Halloween 4. And he looks slightly younger in it because I think he was about 15 when he made the film. I will probably go for Game of Thrones as a bluff, just because I can only remember one instance of it being said. I can't comment on uh, Game of the Thrones, um, not really (laughs) being a fan. I think... Who even are you and why are you on this podcast? <laughs> I'm a dissenting opinion. Um, Sex and I, cookies, remember? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still waiting for my cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, most likely you would have made up the first one. I think that uh, the number will either, either be significantly higher or lower. And you've just uh, you've changed that statistic. I'm going to go for winter is coming. Because three times in an hour is quite difficult. <laughs> 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 you just chose that for that line, didn't you? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And I will go with Clueless as well, so that way two of us are hopefully going to be right no matter what happens. Unless it's the... Unless it's one. the Avengers <laughs> one, yeah. The Avengers one is true. Woo-hoo. As is the Game of Thrones one. Woo-hoo. Now, when you're going to change the statistics, I figured it had to be either double or half. So, do we think it's double 30 or half 30? Double. Double. Because 15 is not that impressive. Half. Not a long <laughs> film. Tri- triple. <laughs> <laughs> and he's going for the triple. <laughs> Winter is coming. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, she actually changes her clothes 60 times. Whoa. Whoa. And wears seven different types of plaid. Great. <laughs> but it is, a, it is a good film. You will enjoy it, John. Yeah, I will. When you eventually get dragged into seeing it by accident, I will give it a go. I've heard good things about it, but I've never felt the need to sit down and watch it. Although I did this morning sit down and watch the first two minutes of Paddington 2 before Louise ran in and went, I want to watch that. Turn it off. You're not watching that without me. 
Was that an accurate representation of her voice? No. <laughs> yeah, one of the true sequels that is better than the original. And the original's pretty darn good. I've been worn down with everyone telling me how great it is that I'm going to give it a go. You'd be disappointed now. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going there. <laughs> it is the return of Nerd Court, and we've got our very own Judge John to explain the proceedings. All lies for Nerd Court. <laughs> We are here today to put on trial a film that has divided a relationship. (laughs) Two young lovers, star-crossed. The relationship was perfect with one tiny flaw. A film a woman loved. A film a man hated. But who will be right? And will their relationship survive? (laughs) On trial today, Thor Ragnarok. Do you want to tell who's defending it? And... No. <laughs> <laughs> the film will be defended by Hazel Burton and will be torn to shreds by Mr Andrew Chandler. First of all, the witness for the prosecution, if you could give us your opening statement. Thank you, Your Honour. You look very nice today. You don't want to know what I've got on any of these robes. <laughs> Catwoman costume. <laughs> Nerd Court exists to bring justice upon media which fails to meet appropriate standards, such as the third solo film of a wildly popular superhero, which throws away drama and tension built up by the previous films, and fails to capitalise on exciting plot points with immense potential, because it is too busy refusing to take itself seriously, and cramming in jokes which don't serve the story. No, I'm not talking about Superman 3. Today we're here to talk about Thor Ragnarok, a film with a lot of the same problems, but with the volume turned up to 11. I suppose I could just refer you back to Hazel's successful prosecution of Superman 3 in episode 38, available at nerdfestpodcast.com, and then just replace the words Superman and slapstick with Thor and Bathos, but there's really a lot more that needs to be said. I intend to explain how this film is unforgivably deficient, whether or not you find it funny. A YouTube fail compilation video might be funny to some, but a mega-budget blockbuster franchise sequel film must deliver a lot more if it is to be worthy. Ms. Burton, your response? Oh, I'm angry already. <laughs> <laughs> your Honour and members of the jury, the prosecution has brazenly come here to unpick one of the greatest Marvel movies of all time and twist every little thing to tell you it's not worthy. Well, I will prove to you that Thor Ragnarok is entirely praiseworthy for the way that it handles Thor's character. It explores new worlds, both physically and metaphorically, and it has enormous amount of love and care poured into every single frame. The main argument that I will undertake is the fact that Thor Ragnarok has a strong sense of self-awareness. The movie and its stars laugh both at themselves and with their audience. It's the first Thor movie that will make you want to see more of them. Taika Waititi's directorial style is loose, very collaborative, and it's precisely this kind of film that Marvel needed to break the studio out of its habits and demonstrate something so radically different than what's come before. Okay, uh, we're going to start with the first piece of evidence from the prosecution. Yes, my, my first charge is that Thor Ragnarok is a terrible sequel. Uh, Now, as nerds, we love depth in our fiction. We enjoy revisiting favourite characters, witnessing the expansion of familiar worlds. A good sequel will keep the core of the original film and introduce new themes, take established characters to new places, give the audience the same but different treatment. I mean, it's Marvel's greatest strength. It's vast and rich intertextual universe. This works because each individual film has respect for its peers. Thor Ragnarok, however, goes out of its way to fuck up everything that came before. But at this point, may I just, for the record, say that what came before was Thor the Dark World, so uh, (laughs) tread carefully here. I would like to humbly suggest to the court that Thor the Dark World is not on trial here, so we shouldn't really be making quality judgments. I'll allow it, (laughs) but I will put you for an assessment afterwards as to the state of your mental health. Um, Can I just say Thor the Dark World is quite key to my argument, so if you could allow it, that would be great. Thank you. It's allowed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not opposed to different styles or directions. It's fairly necessary to keep things fresh, but it just leaps into being different without following on logically from its predecessors. It's jarring and dissatisfying to somebody who was engaged with the pre-existing story and characters, like how Alien 3 begins with Newton Hicks already dead. 
I liked and cared about Thor's. <laughs> Why did you remind me? <laughs> Ragnarok just produces a personality transplanted pod person version of Asgard. Now, it's the third Thor film and the character's fifth appearance overall, and it lost the heart, real emotion, and drama that it should have picked up from previous films. Take the ex- outstanding ending to Thor The Dark World, with Loki believed to be dead but actually having seized the throne by impersonating Odin. It's a deliciously juicy cliffhanger with immense possibilities. How did Ragnarok pay this off? By swiftly undoing it in a single scene which takes the piss out of the whole thing. Loki, up until now an intelligent and conniving character, is idiotically and uncharacteristically cavorting around making no effort at all to act like Odin and Thor just sees right through him. The rest of Asgard had somehow failed to recognise that something was up, making the whole thing farcical and unbelievable. Now, this scene also featured a mocking parody play of the most emotional scene in the Dark World, sneering through a veil of cheap laughs at the very concept of a film daring to display some heart. I was already perturbed at this early stage, but this scene genuinely upset me in the cinema and made me feel insulted. It's the onlookers being so earnestly invested in the play when it's clearly such twaddle that said to me, if you like this scene in Dark World, you're an idiot. And the very last time we saw Thor, it was the end of Age of Ultron. He declares that he's going to try and find why Infinity Stones have been popping up and who's pulling the strings. And they pay that off with two lines totaling 15 words. I went searching through the cosmos for some magical Infinity Stone things. Didn't find any. And this is the filmmakers effectively saying, we're just not going to bother with that at all. Thor and Jane's relationship is over and dismissed quickly and clumsily. Thor and Odin's rocky relationship isn't explored deeply. Lady Sif is nowhere to be found. Thor now speaks with the cadence of a millennial douchebag. Ragnarok is a film which disregards and disrespects what came before instead of building on it. How would you feel if the upcoming Rise of Skywalker was a mocking comedy that cheapened the previous Star Wars films? We've all seen The Last Jedi. <laughs> you liked it, didn't you? <laughs> Taika Waititi said it himself in an interview with The Good One podcast. When asked about how he balanced the new comedic dimension of Thor with what he had been previously, he said, basically, we just destroyed everything that went before. Uh, your response? Well, to that I say, thank goodness. Instead of a grand Shakespearean epic, uh, which thinks it's a lot smarter than it actually is, Taika Waititi chose to explore the the weirder elements of Thor's world, which you hadn't seen before. And the prosecution can't argue that he doesn't like weird and things he's never seen before, because he says that frequently to me in the bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) Objection? (laughs) That's not what she said. I'll allow it. That is what she said. Up until Ragnarok, Thor films were not only dangerously boring, they were becoming dangerously one-dimensional. Thor is a spoiled god who gets banished to Earth and has to find his true power before returning to his kingdom. whoop de fucking do I don't care about a spoiled brat, I don't care about his kingdom, and I don't care about his massive ego. <laughs> there was a brief glimmer of hope when Patty Jenkins was given the director's role for The Dark World. She wanted to go with a bold new interpretation, having Thor face off against the Enchantress. Of course, that didn't happen. Jenkins was fired and the female villain was axed, reportedly because of a suggestion from Isaac Perlmutter, the reclusive far-right-wing CEO of Marvel. He's the one who suggested that female action figures didn't serve as well as others. So what we got in the dark world was Natalie Portman, who had sided with Patty Jenkins, swiftly punished with the lamest of lame storylines, Basically, she accidentally stumbled upon a pile of red goop. The umbilical cord was cut. Ragnarok is a film intended to break what has gone before, and thank goodness for that. Here is a film with imagination, pure imagination, in fact. If you um, think back to the song reference to Willy Wonka's Tunnel of Terror Trip, where we first meet the Grandmaster, we meet Valkyrie, played by Tessa Thompson, the Asgardian outcast who's trying to drown her past in drink, and Korg, who's the most likeable thing in a movie that's full of them. And we get the hook back. He's there to complete the buddy comedy that the film becomes in the second half. A key part of a sequel is actually to set up more sequels, especially in a Marvel franchise. So if you're arguing that because Ragnarok returned Loki was a bad thing, well, then we wouldn't get him in the later Marvel movies, the Avengers. Uh, objection. I wasn't arguing the fact that Loki You've came had back. your time. <laughs> objection to the objection. Um, 
Do you make clarify your point? I, I wasn't arguing that it was bad that Loki came back. I was arguing that they just took him from an interesting position and did away with it just so they could have Loki in the film. They Great. didn't pay it off at all. I disagree. Old. Thank you. So major plot points such as that, the Grandmaster's connection to the Collector, Hela's potential involvement with Thanos, they all represent stepping stones to the climax of Marvel's Phase 3. So you can't argue that Ragnarok abandons every bit of canon, because it really doesn't. It abandons the lacklustre themes, introduces exciting new ones, and lays the ground for one of the best cinematic experiences the world has ever seen. Unless you ask Martin Scorsese. (laughs) As for the other sequel in the Thor series... Well, the most criminal aspect of Thor The Dark World, beyond its lack of entertainment, is the fact that it doesn't add anything to the larger MCU. The film is entirely skippable, and it turns out lightning had to strike three times in order to light its audience up. Well, you've um, you've made some interesting points there. Um, Also some less interesting ones. We'll we'll, uh, rapidly move on to, uh, do you have a second piece of evidence? Yeah, it's that Thor's character is terrible. Look, other than the <laughs> comedy, there is nothing in this film. There's, there's nothing at all, no emotion, no engaging characters, no captivating plot, no themes, no arcs, nothing. I could tell you about how every character is the comic relief. Instead of that, I'm going to point out just how shit they made Thor's character. And I could talk for nine hours about how unlikable the protagonist is in this film, but I'm going to try and do it in eight. Through lack of understanding about how ad-libs affect overall perception of the character, he is transformed into a dumb, arrogant man-child. In the opening scene, he spouts exposition to a skeleton. There is absolutely no explanation for why he is speaking to an inanimate object, it makes him look either stupid or insane, and it's never touched upon again. This is the very first thing in the film, it's the jumping-off point, the setup for everything else, and already he's a nonsensical doofus. Captured on Sakaar, he's bound in a chair and passes through a weird Willy Wonka tunnel which scares him so much that he ends up screaming in the middle of a room full of people. For some reason, he's now a chicken and has no dignity. The haircut scene. I love Stan Lee, but all that's achieved here is that Thor is revealed to be vain about his appearance to the extent that he's actually afraid of having his hair cut. When Hulk steps out of the bath, Thor gets all bashful because he's naked. He's juvenile and can't focus on the important matters at hand because he saw a Willy. <laughs> In the Quinjet, he refers to himself twice as Strongest Avenger. This shows the type of arrogance that he very specifically overcame in the first Thor movie. Valkyrie points out that his disguise doesn't work because she can see his face, to which he says, not when I do this, you can't, and pulls the shawl across his face because he's a moron. (laughs) The the short-sighted improvised comedy harms the respectability of the character over the length of the whole film. Improv can work well in films if it comes from a strong character position, but the jokes in Ragnarok tend not to come from character, quite the opposite. They hinge on actions and events that are incongruous with our expectations of the characters or superhero movie tropes in general. The jokes therefore weaken rather than enrich the character. And it's more than just Thor's personality that's managed in a cack-handed way. He undergoes some significant changes in the film, losses of his father, best friends, Hammer, Eye and Home, the ascension to the throne, But he doesn't have an actual character arc, he doesn't change as a person. His motivation in the film is purely external, he wants to get home to fight Hela. There's nothing internal to do with who he really is. The film doesn't go anywhere near the themes of duty, destiny or desire which surrounded him in the first two films. The biggest missed opportunity for Thor and the film as a whole was the impact he could have felt from losing Mjolnir. All the pieces were there to give this film an extra dimension in a theme of finding strength within oneself after a significant loss. They even briefly flirted with it. When set upon by Rongans on Sakaar, Thor reaches for Mjolnir instinctively, only to realise that it's gone. He later briefly tells Korg about his hammer in a wistful fashion, but then of course Korg then goes and ruins any potential for this idea by explicitly stating that losing it was almost comparable to losing a loved one. The first rule of visual storytelling is show, don't tell. Clearly telling us this instead of showing and letting us feel it removes any possibility of getting emotionally invested in what this loss means to Thor. And then they don't explore it anyway, there's no questioning of whether he still has his power, no identity crisis, no curiosity in how he managed to fight Hulk in the arena. The Korg line is another Waititi punctuation mark, telling us that we're not going anywhere with this train of thought. Of course, they do revisit it at the end with Odin's ghost asking Thor whether he's the god of hammers, which is a good line, but it's too late by now. There was no internal strife within Thor to be resolved by this moment. No emotion built up throughout the film to pay off. 
I see the um, the defendant is shaking her head angrily. <laughs> I think it's only fair to let her speak. Thank you, Your Honour. In Thor Ragnarok, Chris Hemsworth is no longer the movie's straight man. He finally has a script and a director that are as funny as he is. When you cap that potential, which is what happened in the first two films, we ended up with just someone who was mind-numbingly dull. He might have been worthy of wielding uh, Mjolnir. Mjolnir? He might have been... Excuse me, sorry to interrupt. Were you making a Dark World reference to Darcy's inability to say the word Mjolnir there? Yes. (laughs) Very clever. Thank you. He might have been worthy of wielding his hammer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What's the hammer called, just to be clear? Mjolnir. Mjolnir. But he's still a few beers short of a six-pack. Would it please the court to learn the moment that I fell in love with Thor and Chris Hemsworth? Objection. I don't want to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> it was Thor Ragnarok. Um, because whilst, of course, I do not speak for everyone, I want to let you into a little secret about what women want. We don't want a hero. <laughs> we don't want a brooding hulk of misery masquerading as a mystery. <laughs> and we don't want someone Get your who coat, is... mate. <laughs> And we don't want someone who is so absorbed by their own journey of self-discovery that they ignore everything else. Thor 1 and 2. The most attractive feature in a partner, for me at least, is self-awareness. It's the ability to look inside yourself, read your own behaviour and feelings, and rationally consider the implications of those actions and thoughts. To be self-aware is to understand what you say and do affects people, and to have that fact matter to you. Having this quality is to possess the most attractive trait of any potential partner. And if you're lucky enough to find someone fitting that description, marry him or her immediately, which is what I'm doing. You're married Chris Hemsworth. (laughs) (laughs) In the first films, Thor was becoming the evidence of the man who's been told that he's a god since the day he was born. And when someone is spoon fed the myth of his own greatness daily, there's a real danger in that. You know, just look at who's in the White House at the moment. And whilst we saw Thor struggling with this concept and the feeling of alienation he had in the first two films, it's Ragnarok where we learn what sort of man Thor has decided to become. His self-awareness makes him the most endearing of all of the Avengers and the most watchable on screen. During the course of the film, Thor loses his allies, his freedom, his hair and his hammer. But what he gains is a super sense of self-awareness that replaces a consistently self-indulgent whining in the first two films. He's finally in on his own joke, and it's the first movie with an idea of what makes its hero worth rooting for. Self-awareness is now his superpower. Now, in the past two movies, Thor has checked off boxes that would make him a hero on paper, but his motivations were rooted in personal causes. In the first film, he saved the world, but his true goal was actually to prove himself worthy enough to wield his mythical hammer. In the second film, he saved the world again, but he was driven to do so because of the love of his life, Jane Foster was in trouble. In the Avengers films, it was either his vendetta against Loki or his love for Foster and not a deep-seated urge to see good triumph over evil that brought him to Earth to join the fray. Now in Ragnarok, Watiti cleverly mines the idea that Thor has no idea just how much his home means to him and uses his relationship with the Asgardian people to finally infuse in him some real sense of humanity. Interesting. Um... So what you're saying is that everything that you love about a person is everything Andy... Hates about a person. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Suggesting a deep self-loathing there, Mr Chandler. Would that be correct? Got it in one. <laughs> um, can we move on to your final piece of evidence? Yeah. Um, my final thing here is that the jokes do more harm than good. Uh, strap in. This will be a long one. I'll do my best. <laughs> I, I know that comedy is It's subject- weird and we've not done it before. <laughs> <laughs> I know that comedy is subjective, so my argument isn't simply that I don't find the film funny. I mean, I really, really don't, but that's not the point I want to make. Thor Ragnarok is infested with bathos. This is a sudden switch in tone from serious to trivial for comedic effect. The aim is to create a laugh via the juxtaposition of the two contrasting tones. But by necessity, uh, it destroys the drama that was being built up. Once he switched to trivial, the tension is released and the audience's emotional investment in the moment is severed. This is actually something fairly common in most Marvel movies, but the key differences here are in frequency and timing. 
Thor Ragnarok typically injects Bathos directly into the drama without allowing it any resolution first. This is done because it creates the biggest possible contrast and so theoretically the biggest laugh. Of course, the scene is gutted of all of its dramatic tension. But because the ongoing event in the plot hasn't been resolved yet, the scene has to stagger on after the interruption, now devoid of any meaning or real audience interest. The humour halts the momentum and does this so often that the film has an uneven stop-start feel to it. Examples of this are many. One such is the opening scene, with Thor dangling from a chain in front of Surtur. The enormous fire monster is delivering his evil exposition when Thor suddenly interrupts him to casually declare that he's rotated away from his foe and can't see him anymore. <laughs> Is to me. So I will remain neutral. Objection to the terrible acting in the last <laughs> interjection. <laughs> Uh, his demeanour is chatty and unconcerned, and this puts the brakes on the scene and makes Serta seem completely unthreatening. Why should we be concerned about the bad guy or Thor's predicament when our hero doesn't care? Then they do literally the exact same joke again, and at this point the viewer isn't just detached from the drama, they've lifted their suspension of disbelief and are now very much aware that they're watching a movie make fun of itself, but the scene has to pointlessly carry on. Or how about the introduction of Valkyrie? The timing and manner of her entrance, along with the music and the framing, paint her as a badass. She looks cool and her introduction gives us certain expectations. We're on the hook. And then she takes a drunken pratfall off the ramp. We're off. <laughs> <laughs> Is it that easy, really? <laughs> she takes a drunken pratfall off the ramp and we're off the hook. The badass vibe immediately evaporates. She looks like a goof, but then she gets up and just continues on as before. A self-aware goof. The film is painfully self-aware, to the extent that it's all meta. First impressions mean an awful lot. We were directed to think something specific about this character. That was undercut for the sake of a laugh. Then we were asked to go back in time in our minds and think of the character as a badass again. I'm sorry, it's too late for the drama. How about Banner jumping out of the ship to fight a CGI wolf, expecting to turn into the Hulk, but instead splatting onto the bridge in his human form? <laughs> Everyone stops what they were doing to look at him, then decide to just get on with things, and then Hulk shows up and fights the wolf anyway. The momentum of the scene is killed, Banner looks like an idiot, and then they just try to carry on as if nothing happened. It doesn't work dramatically. It's already gutted its own dramatic moments so often that you can see this one coming a mile away. So many of the jokes are exactly the same at their core. A setup of a dramatic scenario in keeping with the style of an action-adventure film, and a punchline in the form of a sudden subversion of that scenario. Essentially, ah, you weren't expecting that in your Thor film, were you? It's cheap and shallow meta-humour, and it gets old and repetitive. They could have made a funny film that still told a good story and featured compelling characters, Guardians of the Galaxy managed this, but they very purposefully used jokes to undermine these things. The jokes are ultimately attacks on the movie itself, Taika Waititi is an indie filmmaker with open contempt for the Marvel formula, and he is constantly winking at the audience, effectively saying, these superhero films are all stupid, aren't they? Waititi savages the two biggest and most important dramatic moments in the story with Bathos. These are moments without which the story simply doesn't work emotionally, becoming just a bunch of stuff that happens. First, the midpoint of the film is hijacked by Thor hitting himself in the head with a rubber ball. This is the point at which he goes from being a passive protagonist to an active one. He stops having things happen to him and starts to make things happen himself, beginning his journey towards the conclusion. It's a very important shift in the dynamic of the movie. The equivalent moment in Star Wars is when Luke discovers that Princess Leia is being held captive nearby and convinces Han and Chewie to help go rescue her. It's a gigantic step for the character of Luke to make. In Thor Ragnarok, however, the moment is sacrificed at the ultra slapstick humour, rendering it flat and non-engaging. Then, the ultimate conclusion of the plot, the Luke blowing up the Death Star moment, is the destruction of Asgard. Everything has led up to this moment. This is why the rest of the film happened. But Korg's glib observations rob it of any weight by turning it into just another setup for one of his awkward jokey comments, rendering all of the events of the movie emotionally irrelevant. We don't feel anything at the end of the story. If this film was designed to have any sincerity at all, any attempt to be an actual proper film, these were the crucial moments that should have been played straight. Look, it's not even a film that doesn't bother to try to cultivate drama and emotion. Its entire ethos is the rejection of drama, emotion, and sincerity. 
Um, Your Honor, I'm a little scared of the defense who is incandescent <laughs> with rage at this point, and I'm afraid she might attack uh, us members I'm, of the jury. Um, I'm a little worried. I, I can see uh, her turning green um, and wearing purple pants, so uh, let's uh, let's get two security guards in to make sure this is a get uh, physical, and you may give your rebuttal, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. The prosecution has argued that the humour in this movie sometimes undercuts dramatic moments, leaving the film without an emotional core. Firstly, he's admitting that the film is indeed funny. Objection. That is an entirely subjective opinion. I have very clearly stated that I don't find it funny. I'm saying that it has Objection. attempted jokes. No one cares. Um, how many times did you laugh during the film? Zero. Genuinely zero. I, I'll allow it. Secondly... Humour and drama aren't actually isolated from each other. You can still have both without anything being undermined. Uh, uh, sorry, objection. Uh, the whole point was the bathos, which is is entirely that the joke is derived. You've, you've from had your, you've had your time. You may have it again. I doubt it, but you may. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to come back to that. Well, uh, an argument I'd like to make is that where previous Marvel movies made up most of their humour by having the characters insult one another or make pop culture references, Thor Ragnarok finds its laughs in the ridiculousness of the situation and the way that its characters react to it. The film doesn't have a mean bone in its body. The characters have things happen to them that are funny, but it doesn't have the same problem that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 had in regard to Mantis. Drax is horrifically mean about her, to her face, about her looks. Ha ha ha. It's not funny at all. Ha 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 Oh, no, I, I got that one wrong. <laughs> Apologies. This is a movie that loves its characters and wants them to have a good time alongside the audience. It's those broad jokes and small moments from a director of small movies that stick. It's precisely what has made many of the better Marvel films, which feel like small pictures blown up into big ones, work so well. If you have a rock creature, why wouldn't you make a rock, paper, scissors joke? And of course, our heroes will return to Asgard via a portal known as the Devil's Anus. And yes, I do want to see Hulk smash a giant serpent. Is the Devil's Anus one of those weird things that's not been done before? (laughs) Would that every superhero film had such a light touch. Not every job needs a hammer. (laughs) (laughs) Previous question. (laughs) Marvel has perfected the art of the afterthought joke. So the moment when a character is status, usually a powerful supervillain or hero, delivers a grand speech that's met with silence before an acidic quip from someone else undercuts the whole thing. Ragnarok lives in the afterthought. The silly extended joke, the sly check-in to gorge whether the audience is paying attention, the sardonic eye roll... All of the serious action is tempered by Korg's inappropriate cheeriness or by characters literally gagging over the smell of melted flesh. It's all to make sure that you know, and you know that the movie knows, how silly this entire story about goddesses of death, lightning bolts, eye patches, horns and the pronunciation of Asgard really is. Now the prosecution would allow you to think that this is a bad thing, but actually it's the first step in realising how awesome the Thor franchise and its hero can truly be. You're allowed to have fun because everyone else is having fun too. And isn't that why we're all addicted to improv? Because the audience has fun when the players truly know what game they're playing. And they play up to the max. Thor Ragnarok isn't perfect, but it doesn't deserve to be ripped to shreds. In their gentlest forms, films are meant to tell a story, absorb the viewer, and maybe distract them if they're having a bad day. I saw this film three times in the cinema, which was eight hours of welcome distraction from a pretty difficult time in my life. And I believe a world record. (laughs) (laughs) And if that means I'm too emotionally tied to it, so be it. I'll start a revolution and this time I'll make sure I print enough pamphlets. Now, see what I just did there? I had an emotional moment underpinned by a humorous moment. Now, who's to say that doesn't work? I rest my case, Your Honour. I think we'll let you each have 38 seconds for your closing arguments. Can I please have more? I've, I've written it ahead of time. You can have 42 <laughs> seconds. Thank you, Your Honour. T- today I've described for you in excruciating detail why Thor Ragnarok is an unacceptable movie. It took the reins of an established franchise and very intentionally drove everything familiar into the dirt, choosing instead to do something no more substantial than making a bunch of self-aware jokes at the expense of the franchise itself. 
It took Thor, a character who started as an entitled arrogant warrior, but then learned through a proper story arc, humility, discovered the value of power, found love, and ultimately became a noble, self-sacrificing hero. And then it used him as a superficial vessel for jokes, clumsily rendering him an oafish buffoon who can no longer be taken seriously. After the first two films, becoming King of Asgard in the third would have been a fitting conclusion to his arc, but in the end it didn't matter at all. But the biggest crime was the way that jokes were used to drive drama, emotion and sincerity out of the film. We live in a postmodern world where the old ideal of earnest sentimentality has been relabeled cheesiness and is something to be deplored and mocked, but cinema's greatest and most memorable moments hinge on unabashed emotion. Iron Man's sacrifice, Andy Dufresne's escape from Shawshank, Darth Vader's revelation to Luke, Rocky and Adrian's embrace in the ring, Quint recounting his experience of the USS Indianapolis, the death of Boromir, <gasps> what's in the box, and so on and so on. Almost every joke in Ragnarok is delivered at the expense of someone or something that otherwise might have succeeded in making the audience feel. This is so consistent that it becomes the overarching message of the film, a statement by the filmmakers that warmth and sincere emotion are to be mocked and condemned. I hate this film because it's a rejection of everything I love about cinema. If you love cinema, you should reject Thor Ragnarok. And that's why, funny or not, it should be sent to nerd jail. 41 seconds exactly, well done. Miss <laughs> <laughs> uh, Burton, you have 12.2 seconds. <sighs> Your Honour, it's such a sweeping statement to say that this film doesn't touch people because it really did, you know, touch me. I felt a lot. No, no, no you no. touched yourself whilst watching the film. <laughs> no. That's an entirely different thing. <laughs> Being a hero isn't as simple as having superpowers or a cool cape. It's about being the kind of person worthy of admiration, and in Thor's case, being a god worth worshipping for the people of Asgard. Your Honour and members of the jury, I have proven in this case that Thor Ragnarok is the sequel that Thor's character needed, and that the comedy in the film adds to its endearing charm and doesn't undercut it. And most importantly, it invites the audience in to have fun, and I think we need a little bit more of that in this world right now. So please don't send Thor Ragnarok to nerd jail. Before I reach my decision, uh, we have two esteemed members of the jury here. In complete disrespect as to how courts work, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask the jury um, to assist me here. Uh, Mr Watkins, what, what are your thoughts on these arguments that we've heard today? Well, they both make some very good points. I remember being a bit disappointed by Thor Ragnarok when I first saw it. Uh, for many of the reasons that the prosecution has mentioned. I love Taika Waititi's work, but I found on this one, as the prosecution was saying, the humour came at the expense of undercutting what we were supposed to be invested in. That said, it is probably my favourite of the three Thor films. Upon re-watching them, I did enjoy Ragnarok that bit more, knowing more about what kind of film it was going to be. It does have lots of moments that I really enjoy, but on the flip side of that, even in Infinity War and Endgame, Ragnarok presented more problems for the character of Thor than opportunities. They had him lose his eye in Ragnarok, and then by the end of Infinity War, he's got it back. And Why wouldn't you want to try and replace your eye if there was one right there? Story. <laughs> if one of the points of Ragnarok was Thor losing everything and coming to terms with that and becoming a new person, undoing that seemed to me that either the Russos and the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole were on a completely different track to Taika Waititi or they wanted to undo it, therefore it probably didn't need to happen. And I do have a lot of problems with Thor in Endgame and how he is treated comedically when he doesn't really need to be and a lot of that does root Objection, from Ragnarok. Objection, Endgame is not on trial. You can't object to the jury i'm just giving my thoughts yes. um, I, I think the point i think the point so, that mr watkins is trying to make is that thor's character in endgame was negatively affected as a result of ragnarok yes and chris hemsworth is a brilliant comedian but thor needs to be a bit more than that so though they both make very good points i wouldn't put ragnarok anywhere near my top 10 mcu films and i might veer on the side of the prosecution <gasps> mm. Mr. Peter Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's always a question of how you combine comedy and seriousness. For me, some of my favourite things combine those two things successfully. I love the way that, say, Buffy would put you in a serious situation and then would punctuate with comedy. 
certainly that sort of comedy does often go with a seriously bad situation as a way of humans dealing with a thing. Quite common in wartime, for instance, stuff are very particular types of comedy. I watched The West Wing as a comedy in a lot of ways because I thought it was genuinely really, really funny mm-hmm. because of the humour within the characters. And, and I didn't feel that in any way that undercut the uh, seriousness of the situations. Ragnarok came at a time Thor, as a character, had gone completely off the rails. It followed what still is often regarded as the worst Marvel movie and had to have a major course correction to follow it. So I think it's not necessarily fair to complain that it's undercutting stuff that happened in Dark World, but it had to do that to rehabilitate the character. And he was being seen in very different ways in Avengers and the other group films than he was in his own solo outings. I genuinely enjoyed the film. I thought it was great fun. I wasn't bothered by the things that bothered you because I saw it as part of the whole. And I also think it's important to have a complex and interesting world that you can be in different spaces within that world, rather than all having the same tone through every movie. I've seen it a few times, and I've enjoyed it every time. So I would defend Ragnarok. Mm. Blitz jury. Permission to treat the witness as hostile. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let me see. Mm. Put it away, John. <laughs> I will say at the outset that... John, no! <laughs> let the man speak. <laughs> Thank you very much. I will say at the outset that I enjoyed Thor Vagnarok. Can, can I ask why the um, judge is doing this in the voice of a 70s comedian? <laughs> <laughs> judge Manning will hear you and have no further questions. <clears throat> I'm 98 years old <laughs> and I would like to bring it to a conclusion. The question is not whether I liked Thor Vagnarok. What I must do is balance the arguments. Is it undeniable that Thor Vagnarok is an entertaining and amusing film. However, the levity that is within the film could be said to distract from the character and the overwhelming narrative of the Marvel films. On that basis... What? On that basis, (laughs) Thor Vagnarok will not be sent to nerd jail or nerd hell. However, it will be exiled from the Marvel Cinematic Universe to exist in its own pocket where it can entertain people and have no effect on the things that Andrew holds dear. Well, apart from that, Taiki Waititi's back to direct the fourth one. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) My verdict still stands, and we will be here for trial number two in 2022. feel like we've resolved nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all we've got time for for this episode of Nerdfest. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, John, what are you going to do this week for people who leave us a review? I am going to give one person a private dance. As we did last time. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Nobody's taking it. Is up. it the same person? Well, they they won't give me their address. Okay, all right. So it's still on offer. Um, tempting. We will be back in two weeks' time with another episode full of reviews and quizzes. Until then, you've been listening to someone who always wanted a Game Boy camera but never got one. The God of Angry Diatribes. Someone who's wondering how many different forms of plaid he can wear. Meat loaf punching Abraham Lincoln in the face. <laughs> and I'm now single, so if you like Hazel to do a private dance for you. <laughs> Don't joke about that. <laughs> oh, Wonder Walk's okay, really. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>